Well, we're in uh, week 14 of our series in Luke's Gospel, uh, at the point where we're going to be joining the story today. Jesus has pretty much just begun his public ministry, uh, and according to Luke and all the other Gospel accounts, he's already got some pretty impressive momentum going. Among other things, Jesus has called his first disciples. Uh, They weren't the obvious choices, but Jesus clearly saw potential that other people didn't. It also performed uh, a number of uh, amazing miracles. There's this one occasion where Jesus had broken with social convention, had reached out, and had physically touched a leper. And in touching him, he had healed him completely. He's also got on the wrong side of the religious leaders by forgiving people's sins, something that only God could do. Somehow they didn't put two and two together and figure out why he did it. And all the time, the news about Jesus kept spreading. Wherever he went, it's like mobs of people swarmed around him, hanging on his every word. He, he was constantly in demand. Every day, people came to him wanting to uh, talk to him, wanting him to heal them. There was this constant flow of people bringing the sick, the deaf, the blind, the, the, the paralyzed to Jesus. In fact, on one occasion, a bunch of people were so desperate to get their friend to see Jesus that they couldn't get into the house where he was. They climbed onto the roof, ripped up the roof of the building, lowered their friend down right in front of him. This guy who was previously unable to walk just got up and walked out of the room. The place erupts. They're cheering, they're applauding, they're going wild, praising God for doing something so incredible, so wonderful. But all the time, there was this bunch of people who weren't impressed. They were cynical. They were suspicious. They were constantly trying to find fault with Jesus. Whatever Jesus was doing, wherever Jesus went, they were always there in the background hoping to trip him up. And that's certainly what we find them doing in today's passage. We're going to pick up the story in Luke chapter 5, just to get you in the mood while you're finding it, I want you just to shout out what you think makes a great party. In your opinion, what makes a party worth going to? What what does it all come down to? What do you reckon? Food? Food from everywhere. Uh, Okay, Uh, food. Anything else? Entertainment, music? People, yeah. Uh, Anything else? Girls? (laughs) Dear me, uh, does anyone to kind of uh, rescue me? Uh, anything else? Good food, yeah, well, lots of food going on. Now, I think if you boil it all down, honestly, I, I think Eleanor is right. I think the, the key component to a great party is people. I think they can absolutely make or break a party. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to a party where everything was in place, fantastic food, awesome environment, music going on, everything was all in place, and yet it was pretty dull. Ever been to a party like that? Uh, yeah, 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 a few people. Uh, don't look at anyone in the room whose party it was. Odds are, it, it was either the people who were invited or those who didn't show up. I'd suggest people make or break a party. And then on the flip side, you could have like 
a plate of stale sandwiches, water from the tap, a sound system that doesn't work, a room that's a health and safety incident waiting to happen, but you get the right people in the room and a party will break out whether you want it to or not. Anyone been to a party like that? None of you. (laughs) Horrible environment, horrible setting, but the right people, people totally make the party. Now, I'm not after sympathy here, really, but I grew up in a culture where parties were pretty much discouraged. So, as a child, I didn't get to go to many parties. That didn't really happen for me. You see... (laughs) You see, when I was growing up, my parents kind of kept me from the truth that Jesus loved a good party. They didn't tell me that part. I just thought he went to church all the time and hung out at prayer meetings. But if you look through the Gospels, Jesus is frequently found at parties heaving with people. It's like if there was a party going on, Jesus was there in a shop. Now, I'm speculating here. But I honestly think the reason he's there is because of the other people who are present. And that certainly seems to be the case in today's story. It's the story of this guy called Levi. Levi was a tax collector. As a result, he was probably one of the most despised people you could be in Jesus' day. You see, he, he added to his salary by swindling money from innocent members of the public. That's what Levi did. And it didn't help that he was a Jewish person who'd sold out to the occupying Roman government and was gathering taxes for them to the detriment at the cost of his own people. It's like, He just didn't care. Levi would do whatever he had to do to lie in his own pockets. He'd rough people up, he'd bully them, he'd do whatever he had to to extort more taxes out of people, and not just once. Two, three, four, five times a month, Levi might come round and ask you for more money or demand taxes that maybe you had already paid. And he'd invent all kinds of crazy taxes to extort even more money from you. He'll tax you for everything. He'll just start randomly going through your things and tax you for random stuff, your iTunes library. Anything dodgy? He'd tax you double. The number of children you have, multiply it by that number. Anything in your possession, beginning with the letter P, he'd add a certain percentage. I don't know, whatever he could find, he'd creatively tax you for it. And he'd just do it over and over and over again. He'd just come up with creative new things to tax you for, to rip you off. And you couldn't say no, because if you tried to, he'd send the heavies round, and they'd use as much force as was needed to get you to cough up. You get in the picture. Levi would have been one of those people whose society loved to hate. But then Jesus comes along. Jesus had been in town for a little while. He'd already done all sorts of different teaching and 
miracles. Odds are Levi had heard of Jesus already. Maybe he'd even heard him teach or heard about some of the miracles he'd performed. Perhaps he had a contact who was in the house a little early when the guy was lowered through the roof and Jesus not only healed him but forgave him of his sins. So uh, I think Levi probably already had some sort of knowledge of who Jesus was, what he was all about. Now, one of the things I think is most striking about Jesus is this fact that, as we looked at in more detail last time, he was going around forgiving people's sins. And sin is something that Levi was really very familiar with. He knew a lot about sin. He was really very, very good at it. And he knew loads of other sinners too, people who were even better at sinning than he was. And along comes Jesus, giving sinners like Levi a fresh start, a new life. And if there was ever anyone who needed a fresh start, it was Levi. He was desperate for a new life. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to offer him. Verse 27, later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me, be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything and followed him. In an instant, without any hesitation, without having to ask Jesus if he could just kind of sleep on the request a little bit or if he could shop around and find a better quote or if Jesus could lay out his five-year plan for him so he'd know where Jesus was really going. Without any hesitation, Levi locks up shop, leaves it forever and spends the rest of his life following Jesus. In fact, Levi is so incredibly overwhelmed that that Jesus would come to him, a most despised person, the the lowest of the low on the social chain, that he decides he has to throw Jesus a party. He he has to celebrate. Levi's thinking he's never seen love like this before, so he throws a party. Verse 29, later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honour. Many of Levi's fellow tax collectors and other guests also ate with them. That's kind of a nice way of saying who was there, other guests. Love the way the message puts it. Levi gave a large dinner at his home for Jesus. Everybody was there, tax men and other disreputable characters were guests at the dinner. Clearly, these people had a reputation for sinning. People knew who these folk were, that there was an air of notoriety about them. They were bad people. And these were the people that Levi had invited along to his party. So basically, you have all these people who weren't good enough to be accepted in society, weren't good enough to be invited to anyone else's important parties, and now, all of a sudden, They are all in the room with Jesus. But there's also another group of people in the room, another group of people in the crowd, another group of people not on the official guest list who just kind of sneaked into Levi's house that evening. They're almost always there. The Pharisees, not invited, but somehow they've wheedled their way 
in. And what are they doing? Are they having a good time? Are they enjoying the canapes with Jesus? No, they're complaining, they're whining, they're griping about how Jesus is partying and more specifically they are up in arms about the people he's partying with. Look at verse 30. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with such scum? You see what's going on here? That the Pharisees and the religious leaders were fuming about the people who were around Jesus. They just didn't get it. It's kind of like, why do you party with these lowlifes? Now it's interesting to note who they were complaining to. Was it to Jesus? To Levi even? No, it, it was to the disciples. Why do you think that was? I mean, their issue was with Jesus, but here they are complaining to his disciples. Well, this is just me speculating, but maybe it was because Jesus was a little too close to these disreputable characters for their liking. That They spent their whole lives trying to keep their distance from people like that, and Jesus was maybe just a little too close for comfort. Or maybe they've learned their lesson by now. Every time they confronted Jesus in a setting like this one, he would somehow manage to turn the tables on them. It was like Jesus would grab hold of whatever they said and use it to expose the darkness of their own hearts. He he would turn their question on its head and cut right into the deeper core issue in their lives. So they don't complain to Jesus. They're getting a little smarter. They go to his disciples. They say, why does he party with such scum? Why does he hang out with such lowlifes? Why on earth would he make himself available to them? But all the time, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows exactly what they're doing. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, that is without them even asking him, you've got to love that, you've got to love him anticipating what's going on, yelling over to them the other side of the room, kind of lurking in the shadows, says, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. He's saying, don't you get it? I'm not here for the people who think they've got it all together. I'm not here for the people who think they've earned their ticket. I'm here for the sick and for the lost. I'm here for those who know they don't deserve to be here. I've come to call them back to God, to call them into relationship with Him. Do you see? Jesus is giving a free invitation into the kingdom of God to the very people the Pharisees worked their whole lives trying to exclude, trying to keep out. I don't know what you think, but I think this party dynamic 
gives us a very interesting window into the life and mission of Jesus. It also gives us a window into our own hearts. Because the truth is, just like at this party and just like in all of our lives, there is this separation that exists. Uh, On one side of the room, there's a group of people who, don't mind being called this group of people, uh, one side of the room, there there are people who are, are pretty screwed up, people whose whole lives are utterly messed up. You you have these people on one side who who know they don't deserve to be there. Then on the other side, you have a group of people who are all together, who think they have got it made. The the first group know they don't deserve to be there. The, The other group also know they don't deserve to be there because they are way too good. They're so concerned, so consumed with who was out and who was in that they're completely blind to themselves. Notorious sinners on one side, Pharisees, self-righteous on the other. Now I'm telling you, this division still exists today in our lives and in our minds. On one side, You've got a group of people who have all but destroyed their lives, who have continued to lie and steal and cheat and hurt others and self-destruct, breaking God's commands. Then on the other side, you've got a whole load of people who have spent their whole lives trying to convince everyone else why they're really in have tried their whole lives to earn, to keep, to hold on to some sort of faith with God. They've spent their lives keeping the rules. In fact, they've made up all kinds of new rules just to make sure they're really in. And here's the shocking truth we encounter in this story. When Jesus walks into the room every single one of the people there desperately needs His grace. And His grace is big enough for every single one of them. Grace is big enough for every person at the party. It has to be big enough for every one of us. Not just the people who think they've got it all together, but also the people who know they don't. Grace has to be big enough for all of us or is not big enough for any of us. Does that make sense? And perhaps more importantly, do you believe it? Grace has to be big enough to cover terrorists, and prime ministers. Grace has to cover AIDS patients and self-righteous people who have spent their whole lives thinking it's everyone else's fault. Grace has to cover criminals who make their living off tearing other people down, and the self-righteous who sometimes do something really very similar. Grace has got to cover it all, has to cover the worst of these, and it has to cover those who think they're better than everyone else. It has to. And if we're being honest, that can be incredibly hard to accept. 
a while ago, I was chatting with a friend of mine who leads another church in another part of the country. And he told me how he had a, a lady in his church whose dad was dying. Apparently, according to my friend, this lady's dad was a pretty evil man. He, he spent the majority of his life with no regard for God or anyone else for that matter. He was abusive to his wife daily. His wife had two kids from a previous marriage. The oldest was a son whom he beat every day after school, so much so that at the age of 15, the son left home and hasn't been seen since. Husband and wife had three children of their own, three more girls, all of whom were physically abused on a regular basis. He was a violent man, pretty evil man, abusive, alcoholic, you name it. And in his old age, his wife had died some time ago, in his old age, he's living in the middle of nowhere, in obscurity, alone. But a church leader kind of befriends him and began to offer him love and acceptance. And over the course of a lot of conversations, over a lot of time, this guy, this pretty brutal man, became a Christian. What's more, he ended up being taken care of by one of the daughters that he spent the majority of his life abusing. She'd drive over to where he lived and clean his house because he he lived in filth and she'd clean him up and buy him food and stuff. He never once said he was sorry, never once asked for forgiveness, but she began to extend grace to him grace that she herself had received from Jesus. As I'm listening to this story, if I'm being honest, I'm struggling to handle it. I'm thinking, why? I mean, just just leave him alone. Let him die alone. It's like, he's ruined your life. Why do this? I'm being honest. I have a hard time believing that anyone who would hurt a child or a spouse should be covered by God's grace. I also have a really hard time reconciling that someone who's lived their whole life in pretty blatant opposition to God can turn almost on their deathbed and choose God and have life in Him. But if grace is big enough for any one of us is big enough for every one of us. It has to be. It absolutely has to be. And the truth is that when Jesus came into that room at Levi's home, his grace was big enough for both groups of people there. The truth is that Jesus loves sinners. He loves people whose lives are totally messed up and who are willing to admit it. He loves and is for those kinds of people. Now, don't hear me wrong. His grace doesn't condone the sin and the bad choices we make. doesn't say it's all okay. doesn't justify anything, but has the potential to change everything. 
It absolutely changes the room. If, if we'll accept God's grace on his terms, it has the power to completely and utterly transform our lives. I tell you, for some people, this is the most wonderful, life-changing truth. For others, it's one of the most difficult things to come to terms with because it kind of wrecks everything they've worked for. For many people who call themselves religious, grace is the biggest roadblock. It's the biggest hurdle because it's for people who realize they don't deserve it. They don't merit it, that they can never earn it or repay it. It's not for those who think they deserve it. It's for those who know they don't deserve it. And that's a hard pill to swallow at times. Grace doesn't condone anything in our lives. It does have the power to change everything in our lives. Now, I want you to think about this long and hard. I want you to be as honest as you can. Are you willing to let grace cover everyone? Are you willing? Uh, are you willing to let God's grace be big enough for those who we think don't deserve it? Look, it's not easy for those of us who are quick to judge others. It's even harder for those of us who have been at the receiving end of other people's sin. But when we get to the point when we can accept God showing grace to people who we don't think deserve it, that is when things start to change. That's when this church becomes like a party that anyone can come to without feeling condemned or judged or looked down on or rejected or held at arm's length. That's when we start reaching the people that Jesus went to great lengths to reach. That's when we start showing that actually we're true disciples of Jesus. That's when we start being the kind of church that Jesus really has called us to be. Now, if you're hearing what I'm saying, I'm guessing that, at least for some in the room, there's going to be a struggle going on inside you right now. I mean, all of this flies right in the face of all of our natural instincts. There are some people who would find it incredibly hard to forgive, to accept, to show love to. It it might be a certain category of person. There may right now be pictures of specific individuals in your mind. How do we show grace to those people? How do we do it? Here's the key. Just to warn you, this is where some of you are going to find this incredibly hard. You see, it's not just about being willing to accept that grace is for those who don't deserve it. Ultimately, it's all about being willing to admit that you are one of those who don't deserve it. It's not just knowing God's grace is for the worst of the worst out there somewhere. 
It's knowing that you are, in fact, one of the worst of the worst, that I'm, in fact, one of the worst of the worst. It's not until we accept that we are included amongst the worst and that God's grace is big enough for us that we will then be in a place to show grace to others. Just listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in his letter to his friend Timothy. 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, this incredible man of God, this phenomenal leader in the church who, who wrote almost half the New Testament, says these words, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now that was Paul speaking about himself. But here's where the rubber hits the road for the rest of us. Are you and I willing to admit that it's pretty much true of us as well, that we are the worst? And that grace isn't only big enough for everyone else out there, but it's big enough for us too. Now when we get there, when we get to that point, when we admit that there is nothing we can do to deserve it, but that God has freely made his grace available to us, that is the point, that is the moment when life changes. That's when you can start to party. That's when you have joy beyond explanation because you know who you are and you know what is available to you through Jesus Christ. Listen, his grace is big enough for every single one of us do you believe it do you believe it's not only big enough for the worst of the worst but it's big enough for you who falls squarely in that lot if so it changes the way you look at yourself you are accepted you are forgiven you're free. You really are. You, you, you don't have to disqualify yourself. You don't have to do lots of stuff to try to earn it. it. changes the way you look at God as well. He loves you unconditionally. And His love for you becomes the ultimate motivation to live for Him. It's not driven by duty. It's from the heart. That's a way more powerful motivator. And it becomes a lot easier to love those who you think don't deserve it because but for the grace of God, they are you. I tell you, life becomes a whole lot easier when we accept that God does extend grace to those who by their choices or by their actions really don't deserve it. Grace doesn't condone anything, doesn't justify anything, but it does change everything. You know, more than anything else, my hope is that you'll begin to let God's grace change your heart, soften your heart, change the way you think. 
change your whole life. Whether you're someone who you, you know you don't deserve it, or whether you're someone who spent your whole life trying to prove that you do, the grace of God is here today and it's available for you. It's amazing. Jesus hasn't changed one bit. His love for sinners remains the same today. I want you to listen to how Paul closes it out in 1 Timothy 1 verse 16. He says, but for that very reason, because he was the worst of the worst, for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. If God could show grace to Levi and to Paul, he can show grace to us. And if he can show grace to us, he can show grace to anyone. And when we choose to receive his grace, it changes us, it changes others in the room with us, and it has the very real potential to change the whole world. I'll invite you to stand and we're going to pray.